Good morning, ladies. This is Tina, and I'm reading um, Miriam Brinker's lecture for the opening coffee on 914. So, as she said in the, the message earlier that was unable to be recorded, this is Miriam's lecture. And it is an overview of Revelation. So, as she says, Okay, buttercups, we're about to study the book of Revelation. This is by far one of the most challenging books in the Bible, yet well worth the effort to study and comprehend. In fact, the opening passage contains a blessing to everyone who reads, hears, and keeps the word of this prophecy. Blessed is the one who keep, reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That's Revelation 1.3. Revelation is a prophetic book concerning the events of the last days. The name comes from the Greek term apocalypsis, which is where we get the word apocalypse, a word that has come to mean annihilation or cataclysmic destruction, but its original meaning was unveiling or disclosure. The invisible forces and spiritual powers at work in the world and in the heavenly realms are revealed. Although unseen, these powerful control future these powers do control future events and realities. The unveiling comes to the Apostle John through a series of magnificent visions. The strange language, imagery, and symbolism in Revelation weren't quite as foreign to the first century Christians as they are to us today. The numbers, symbols, and word pictures John used held political or religious significance to the believers in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. These followers were familiar with the Old Testament prophetic writings of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, and other Jewish texts. Today, we often need help deciphering these messages. Scholars assign four basic schools of interpretation to the book of Revelation. As des uh, described by John MacArthur, the preterist pre pre approach views Revelation not as a future prophecy, but as a historical record of events in the first century Roman Empire. The Preterist view ignores the book's own claims to be a prophecy, which is in 1 3, 22 7, 10, 18 to 19. The second coming of Christ described in chapter 19 has obviously not yet occurred. And the preterist views require that one see the words about Christ's second coming as fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, even though he did not appear at that occasion. The historic approach portrays Revelation as a record of the sweep of the church history from the apostolic times to the present. The historistic um, interpreters often resort to allegorizing the text in order to find in it the various historical events that they believe it depicts. 
This subject, a subjective approach has given rise to a complexity of conflicting interpretations of the actual historical events in Revelation. Now, the idealist approach views Revelation as the timeless struggle between good and evil, which is played out in every age. According to this view, Revelation is neither historical record nor is it a um, predictive prophecy. If carried to its logical conclusion, this view disconnects Revelation from any reality with actual historical events. The book is reduced to a collection of myths designed to convey spiritual truth. The futuristic um, approach sees chapters 2 to 22 as predictions of people and events yet to come in the future. Only this approach allows Revelation to be interpreted following the same literal method used throughout the rest of Scripture. The other three approaches are frequently forced to resort to allegorizing or spiritualizing the text in order to sustain their interpretations. The futurist approach provides justice to Revelation's claim as prophecy. Insight for Women will be using the futurist approach as we study the book of Revelation. Some Bibles carry the title of the book as the Revelation of John, or a Revelation to John, meaning it is a revelation given to the Apostle John, but the proper name is found in the first words of 1-1, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now let me get nerdy for a minute because these words of of Jesus Christ are in the genitive case. In genitive case, it is a noun case which is used mainly to show possession. So this can mean about Jesus Christ or from Jesus Christ. Some uh, grammarians call this a plenary genitive. A genitive doing double duty since both aspects are true. It is the revelation that comes from Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. God the Father gave God the Son this revelation to his servant John through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus Christ is also the center of the book. The book is supremely the revelation about the Savior who has overcome and will return to defeat all evil. I'd like to note one more thing about the title. While this book contains several visions and unveilings, it is one book and one total revelation centered around one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his literal return to earth. It's not the book of the revelations, plural. The noun revelation in verse 1 is singular in the Greek text. The human author is John, the beloved apostle who was the son of Zebedee and the brother of James, another disciple called by Jesus as one of the twelve. John was exiled to Patmos in 94 AD, and Revelation is believed to have been written around 94 to 96 AD. 
Some claim an earlier writing of A.D. 54 to 68, but this really conflicts with the view of the early church. Revelation was widely circulated and received as inspired scripture by the beginning of the 3rd century, in the early 200s. Writing in the 2nd century, Irenaeus, a theologian and bishop of Lyon, declared that a revelation had been written toward the end of Domitian's reign. Later, such writers as Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Ebesius, and others affirmed that Domitian's date. The spiritual decline of the seven churches in chapter 2s and 3 also argues for the later date as those churches were strong and spiritually healthy in the mid-60s when the Apostle John ministered in Asia Minor. John also wrote the fourth gospel and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. There are some striking parallels between Revelation and John others, uh, John's other works. You see, only Revelation and the Gospel of John refer to Jesus as the Word, Revelation 19.13 and John 1, verse 2. Only Revelation and the Gospel of John describe Jesus as the Lamb, as in Revelation uh, chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, and the Gospel of John 1, verse 29. Both describe Jesus as a witness, Revelation 1, 5, and John 5, 31 and 32, Revelation 1, 7, and John's Gospel, 1937. They translate Zechariah 12, 10 differently from the Septuagint, but in agreement with each other. The Septuagint, written in Greek, is the first translation of the Hebrew Bible adopted by the early Christian churches. Revelation begins with John, the last surviving apostle, and an old man in exile on a small, barren island of Patmos, located in the Aegean Sea southwest of Ephesus. The Roman emperor Domitian exiled John on the island of Patmos for his faith. Patmos was a small, rocky, and very barren area where criminals of Rome were sent to serve out their prison terms in harsh conditions. Some have referred to it as the Alcatraz of Greece. When he was, when he was arrested, John was in Ephesus, ministering to the church there and in the surrounding cities, seeking to strengthen those congregations that he could no longer minister, minister to in person and following the divine command of 111 to write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. John addressed Revelation to the seven churches in Asia. The storm of persecution was about to break in full fury upon these seven churches, so dear to the Apostle's heart. Revelation 2.10 Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. As part of the canon of scripture, what we know is the Bible. Revelation is what God has spoken through the Apostle John, the human author, 
God is an author and scripture. If he emphatically declares that God is not the author of confusion, as in he states in 1 Corinthians 14.33. Therefore, this book is meant to be understood. It is not meant to mystify and confuse. It's as Moses wrote, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That's in Deuteronomy 29.29. The confusion that many associate with this book is due to the way men have tried to approach it. A great deal of confusion comes from a bias against such things as a literal 1,000-year reign, the coming of terrible judgments, and a desire to spiritualize prophecy in general. The confusion comes from those who have tried to spiritualize or allegorize the prophecy. In allegory, words aren't taken in their literal or normal meaning. They are spiritualized, meaning that the interpreter looks behind the plain meaning of the text for a hidden and more profound meaning. The result of this approach is a mixed bag of interpretations. One man sees one thing, and another sees another thing completely different. Because when normal method of interpretation is abandoned, you have no objective controls to your interpretation, and no control over human imagination. To interpret means to explain Explain the original sense of a writer's verses, imposing our idea on the text. To, liter to interpret literally means to explain the original text of the writer according to the normal, customary, and proper usage of words and language. The literal method of interpretation operates by rules, which can help us to ground interpretation in fact. These are the rules of context, grammar, and the analogy of scripture, cultural and historical background, and the normal meaning of words according to their use in various contexts. The literal approach recognizes the fact and use of symbolism, but attempts to understand these on the basis of their normal and plain meaning, as dictated by the normal rules of interpretation. This provides a check on our imagination or prejudice. Ladies, God says what he means and means what he says. <clears throat> if he says seven stars are seven angels, verse 120, then they are seven angels. If he says there will be hail and fire mixed with blood thrown upon the earth, as in 8.7, then there will be hail and fire mixed with blood thrown upon the earth. This is what is called a face, face value hermeneutic. In, that means interpreting the passage at face value in a natural and normal sense. We are to understand what we read in the book of Revelation by taking it literally or at face value. This mean, doesn't mean we ignore the obvious features of speech, 
but it does eliminate substituting the literal meaning for some undying and deeper spiritual meaning, as some have tried to do. The prom uh, prominent theme of this book concerns the conflict with evil in the form of human personalities energized by Satan and his worldwide system, and the Lord's triumphant victory to overthrow these enemies to establish his kingdom, both in the millennium and in eternity. This is accomplished by taking us behind the scenes through the visions given to John to see the demonic nature and the source of the awful evil in the world, along with the conquering power of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who is also the lamb, standing as if slain, but, if, but very much alive, bringing the judgment of God's awesome holiness against a sinful and rebellious world. I guess there is no New Testament book that is as controversial as this book. Some claim that Revelation is impossible to interpret. Others claim it shouldn't be included in the New Testament at all. Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, called it neither apostolic nor prophetic in the preface to his translation of the New Testament. Hulnick Zerugge, the leader of the Reformation in Switzerland, labeled it not a book of the Bible, and it was only the New Testament and was the only New Testament book for which John Calvin, another Protestant reformer, didn't write a commentary. Yet in Revelation 22.10, God told John, Do not seal up the words of this prophecy in this book, for the time is near. God doesn't want the truth of this book to be hidden from us. He wants the church to study. He wants them to understand the message of Revelation. Why? First, because blessing, not confusion, is promised to those who read it. Verses 1-3. Though filled with horror, it ends in the triumph of righteousness and faith. Second, the Bible says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, meaning every single book of the Bible. Revelation is, is so important because it is the completion and the climax of God's revelation and redemptive history. You all know how important it is to read the last chapter in a book, right? Who reads a book and stops before finishing the last chapter? It just doesn't make sense. Revelation brings together a number of lines of prophetic truth which run parallel throughout the Old and New Testaments. Apart from the book of Revelation, they find no complete um, prophetic fulfillment because only Revelation draws them all together into a final conclusion. Without this book, the Bible wouldn't be complete. Thirdly, Revelation is important because it deals with things which must shortly come to pass. It's the only major prophetic book in the New Testament that deals in an in-depth way with the events of the day of the Lord. Other passages deal with this period of time like Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 5. 
but not to the extent that Revelation does. Fourthly, it's important because of the way it re reveals Jesus Christ. It reveals him as the Lamb of God and the King of Kings, who restores to man what was lost by the fall and so much more. As a matter of fact, I found 28 names or descriptions of Jesus throughout the book of Revelation. I can't take the time to present them all, but I have a list of references that I'm happy to share with anyone who is interested. All of Scripture speaks of the Lord. It points men to Him. But the book of Revelation thoroughly demonstrates the culmination of God's complete salvation in Christ. Fifthly, it's important because its unique warnings and challenges to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 that certainly are applicable to us today. But even beyond this, the rest of the book also has a very pertinent message for us. It provides an extended commentary on the spiritual warfare described in Ephesians 6. We see the end of the warfare with rulers, principalities, and powerful powers of evil now under control of Satan. Revelation calls us to walk, to walk carefully and to understand what is happening around us because it isn't merely a struggle with flesh and blood, but with supernatural entities that are as real as we are. It also gives us light gives us a light concerning things to come, of things that haven't yet occurred in history, but they will. There is comfort and encouragement for us to carry on because there is a sure and final judgment on evil and a fulfillment of God's kingdom in time and in eternity. Finally, it's important because it discloses conditions that will be present at the end-time system of the beast and the final world empire, both politically, religiously, economically, and internationally. These conditions are naturally may naturally begin to come together to set the stage before this end-time drama could actually unfold. We are told that Christ's return for his church is imminent, and we should be ready. No other book in the Bible so carefully explains its supernatural origin and the exact way the message was communicated to the writer. John was commanded to write only about the things he saw and heard. He was a personal eyewitness to the things he wrote about. He didn't have to imagine the horrors he described. He witnessed them firsthand and recorded exactly what he saw and heard. John didn't write a fictional novel. He wrote truth. Revelation isn't an allegory. It's not a collection of mysterious, unintelligible symbolism. It's a living, breathing, prophetic, and historical account of events yet to take place. The breathing vision of Jesus that begins Revelation shows him to be glorif the glorified Lord of the church. Can you imagine the hope and the comfort of those persecuted believers at the end of the first century? How they must have felt at this reminder of Christ's present ministry to them? Revelation 119 provides a simple outline for the entire book. 
it says, Write therefore the things which you have seen. Referring to the vision John has just seen in chapter 1. Those that are refer to the letter to the churches, chapters 2 and 3. And those that are to take place after this, referring to the revelation of future history, chapters 4 to 22. The seven churches addressed, addressed in chapters 2 and 3 were real churches. When they were actual churches in, uh, when John lived. Five of the sevens were rebuked for tolerating sin in their midst. Not an uncommon occurrence in many churches. The problems ranged in severity from waning love at Ephesus to total apostasy in Laodicea. They weren't living as true Christians should. Any church in any age uh, can have a mixture of sins that plague the churches or, can, or it can persevere and be commented, com commended as were the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. In contrast to the bizarre figments of imagination of those who falsely claim to have visited heaven, the biblical records, uh, the Bible records the accounts of two people who actually were taken there in visions. In 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul wrote of his being transported to the third heaven. But he was forbidden to speak about what he saw there. The Apostle John, however, was permitted to give a detailed description of his vision of heaven, which he did in chapters 4 and 5. His description is the most complete and informative of all scripture. Through this beautiful vision, we are given the privilege of previewing the place where we will live forever. The heavenly scene in chapter 4 pictures a holy God, worshipped by 24 elders and four living creatures. And it sets the stage for the rest of the book, which focuses on the holy justice of God that is carried out by Jesus Christ. Revelation 5 is all about Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one to be worshipped and the only one who can break the seven seals on the scroll, which then sets in motion the end time events and the return of Christ. The events described in these two chapters anticipate the Holocaust of divine judgment about to be poured out on a sinful, rebellious, cursed earth about to be seen in chapters 6 to 19. Awestruck by the indescribable majesty of God's throne, the flashes of lightnings, the peals of thunder that proceed from it. The cherubim and the elders begin a series of hymns, praising, giving praise to God, celebrating Him as Creator and Redeemer, rejoicing that He is about to take back what is rightfully His. This is a moment that the entire creation has longed for. Beginning in chapter 6, the scene shifts. From heaven to earth, and we are shown the effects of the scroll being unrolled and its seals broken. As Jesus breaks each of those seven seals that secure the roll, each seal unleashes a new demonstration of God's judgment on the earth in the future tribulation period. These seal judgments include all the divine judgments of the seven-year tribulation. The seventh seal contains seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet, trumpet contains seven bowls. 
These will be poured out one after another upon the earth, climaxing in the return of Christ. The first four seals take place in the first half of the tribulation. The events of the fifth seal will mark the midpoint, and then the events of the sixth and seventh seal will stretch into the second half of the tribulation. The first five seals, which are false peace, war, famine, death, and vengeance, describe the preliminary judgments leading to the full outpouring of divine wrath. As horrifying as those preliminary judgments are, they really do pale before the terrors of the sixth seal, which mark the beginning of the day of the Lord. People are finally forced to acknowledge God as the source of these horrible and horrid calamities. They are calling to the mountains and to the rocks to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of wrath has come. And who can stand? That's chapter, 16, ver uh, chapter 6, verses 16 to 17. The seventh and last seal on the scroll contains the trumpet and bowl judgments, causing escalating devastation. These occur during the last half of the Great Tribulation, and they encompass God's final um, wrath up and to the return of Jesus Christ in glory. The first four trumpets announce the divine destruction of Earth's ecology, while the final three involve demonic devastation of Earth's inhabitants. All the suffering and evil in the world cause the godly, to long for God to intervene. A day is coming when he will break his silence, when all the purposes of God will be consummated. But at that time, the Lord Jesus Christ will return and establish his earthly kingdom. The sounding of the seventh trumpet will usher in that long-anticipated day. Now, before the seventh trumpet sounds, there is an interlude which stretches from Revelation 10.1 to 11.14, allowing John to pause and to, ass to assimilate the startling truths that have just been revealed to him. It also serves to encourage God's people in the midst of the horror of divine judgment, reminding us that God is still sovereign. We have the assurance that he hasn't forgotten us, and that we will ultimately be victorious. The sounding of the seventh trumpet marks the end of this interlude and results in the seven rapid-fire catastrophic bold judgments described in chapters 15 and 16. Our world is a theater where God's glorious story of redemption is played out. Satan and his demons have attacked the human race turning the earth into a main battleground in their cosmic war against God, the holy angels, and even the elect. Chapters 12 and 13 focus on atrocious three enemies to come, the dragon, who is Satan, the first beast, who is the Antichrist, and the second beast, who is the false prophet. Antichrist will be primarily a political and military leader, but the false prophet will be a religious leader. Politics and religions will unite in a worldwide religions worshiping the Antichrist. 
Antichrist's career spans the same time period as the seal and trumpet judgments. Satan will serve God's purpose by being permitted to launch another deadly assault against the human race during the Great Tribulation. These are the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. He and his demonic forces will battle Michael and the heavenly hosts and lose. This is the result of their defeat. The devil and his demons will be permanently cast down to the earth. With his restricted theater of operations and his time running out, Satan will gather all of his foreign angels in an all-out attempt to deceive and destroy the souls of men. Chapter 14 serves as a preview of the end of the Great Tribulation. John shows his readers the triumph and vindication of the 144 faithful Israelites who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The fall of Babylon, which is symbolic of the satanic, satanic world system, is foreseen, and the fate of its loyalists is foretold. The chapter then gives us a summary glimpse of the Battle of Armageddon, the war that will truly end all wars. And that, ladies, is where we will leave our study of this action thriller in December. In January, after our Christmas break, we will continue our study of Revelation, the chapters 15 to 22. Spoiler alert, we know how this ends. We win. So let's pray. Father, we thank the Lord so much that all the ladies are here to join us today and that they have been here to hear your words of profound importance to us, our families, and the world. May they take home that unbelievably important desire and just be so yearning to learn more about Revelation. And may they be uh, healthy and able to um, learn their lesson, even though some of them um, may find it very, uh, very time-consuming and even challenging. We pray all of this in the name of your precious Son. Amen.